Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is your 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our journalist and storyteller, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. To set the stage for tonight's story, you're going to need a little history lesson on one of America's most celebrated 20th century heroes, Charles Lindbergh. In 1927, the aviator dazzled the world when he made the first nonstop transatlantic flight from New York to Paris aboard his Spirit of St. Louis. It wasn't his first record. It wouldn't be his last. It's just the one that made him one of the most famous people on the planet. Sadly, fame came with a terrible price because five years after his famous adventure, On March 1 of 1932, someone used a homemade ladder to climb into the second floor nursery of his home near Hopewell, New Jersey, and take Lindbergh's 22-month-old baby boy from his crib. The brazen kidnapper did it while everyone was home, going about their late evening tasks. They discovered the baby missing around 10 p.m., the kidnapper having left behind an open nursery window, muddy footprints, and a poorly written ransom letter on the floor demanding $50,000. After about a week, the Lindberghs received a second note, and over the course of the next month, several more messages exchanged by a variety of means. Some came in the mail. Some were done through notices in the newspaper. One message was dropped off by an unwitting taxicab driver. Another note was ordered to be retrieved from under a particular stone. At one point, the kidnapper sent to the Lindberghs a child's sleeping garment, which they recognized as theirs. After 12 notes from the kidnapper, an exchange was made. 50000 in cash and gold certificates were given to a designated stranger in a park who passed a 13th note to the drop-off man, saying the child could be found near Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, aboard a boat named Nellie. The stranger disappeared and was never seen again. Multiple searches in Massachusetts for a boat named Nellie turned up nothing. 
Five More Weeks of Agony for Charles Lindbergh and his wife Anne. And then, on May 12, a child's remains were found in a wooded area about five miles from the Lindbergh home. They were partly buried and badly decomposed. Charles Lindbergh identified the child as his by looking at the teeth. An examiner determined the child died of a broken skull, probably the same day the boy had been taken two and a half months earlier. The remains were then cremated. Everybody was on the hunt for the killer of Charles Lindbergh Jr., including the FBI. The serial numbers of the ransom bills and certificates had been recorded and banks all over the country were alerted. And a handwriting expert weighed in, saying the ransom letters and the poor language used looked like they came from someone with a German background, an immigrant who had probably been living in the country for several years. But the killer went free for more than two more years until police caught a break. In September of 1934, a New York City gas station attendant had grown wary of a customer who kept paying using gold certificates. And one day, he decided to take down the customer's license plate. He turned it over to police, and they followed it to the home of Bruno Richard Hauptmann, a 34-year-old German immigrant carpenter. He was picked up at his home in the Bronx, and a search turned up nearly $14,000 of the marked ransom money. Justice moved quickly back in those days. Hauptmann went on trial for kidnapping, murder, and extortion three months later. He was convicted and sentenced to death. Historians have referred to this case as the crime of the century. The celebrated journalist and author, H.L. Mencken, would come to describe it as the biggest story since the resurrection. And laws changed as a result of it. This is the case that motivated Congress to make kidnapping a federal offense if the victim is taken across state lines or if the kidnapper uses the federal mail in the course of the crime. Prior to that, the FBI could only consult on such cases. Meanwhile, public attention on this case remained so overwhelming that Charles and Anne Lindbergh exiled themselves to Europe for five years to try and get some peace. But the story was going to get even weirder. Because in January of 1936, that's three months before the scheduled execution of Hauptmann, the international spotlight took an unexpected turn and Akron, Ohio, found itself in its glare. You see, some folks were starting to ask what evidence there was that the baby found in the woods was actually the Lindbergh baby. Because there was a four-year-old boy living in Akron's Ellett neighborhood who made for a very compelling argument that he was Charles Lindbergh, Jr., This argument began with a 60-year-old woman from the Akron suburb of Barberton when she contacted a private detective, John Silverstein, to say that she thought a family member had been involved in a conspiracy to exchange her sickly son for the Lindbergh baby. The woman was the great-aunt of four-year-old Bobby Dolphin. 
The PI took this story to the local police, who, of course, scoffed at the idea, but it was their job to check it out, and they did. And what they found took them down a rabbit hole. Authorities couldn't question Bobby's mother about it. Glendora Dolphin had died from complications during a childbirth in December of 1934. Bobby was being raised by his aunt and uncle, Thelma and Clifford Miller. And they had no warning in January of 1936 when a caravan of Summit County deputies, newspaper reporters, and photographers arrived unannounced at their home on Oakwood Drive. Bobby Dolphin remembered that day. He shared his perspective when Akron Beacon Journal Mark J. Price found him for a story in 2000. Dolphin told the reporter he was in his backyard playing when a bunch of guys in suits and top coats showed up at the house. Officers gave pause when they saw him because he really did look like the Lindbergh boy, blue eyes, curly blonde hair, a dimple on his chin. And get this, coincidence of coincidences. When they showed up at his home, he was wearing an aviator's helmet and goggles the spitting image of a diminutive Charles Lindbergh on his way across the Atlantic. Dolphin told the Beacon, there was a guy with a big camera come round there, and he took a big flash. Well, that scares the hell out of you when you see a big flash in the daylight. My aunt come out and asked what was going on, and then she took me in the house. The story and the photo of little Bobby in his aviator's helmet and goggles was picked up by the wires and transmitted to newspapers around the world. And everyone had an opinion, like that of a Chicago housewife, Marie Martin, who wrote President Franklin Roosevelt after seeing the story in her paper and deciding, the pictures of this Ohio youngster so resemble Mr. and Mrs. Lindbergh that I honestly believe from the bottom of my heart that the boy is the Lindbergh baby. The lips, the mouth, the nose, the shape of the cheek and the chin— I think that child should be investigated further. Well, he was going to be. The grown-up dolphin said the reporters camped out at his aunt and uncle's Ellet home for days. He said they kept walking around the house, trying to get a peek in there and take more pictures. Aunt Thelma, however, kept telling them and investigators the story was ridiculous. Her nephew was not the Lindbergh baby and fearing someone else might try to repeat what had happened to his doppelganger, she stayed awake at night with a shotgun in her lap. Semi County Sheriff James Flower told the Akron Times Press there might only be one in a million chance that the dolphin boy was the Lindbergh baby, but they would investigate and do their due diligence. Bobby was taken to the Akron Police Department, where he gave fingerprints and footprints and authorities were a little startled to find that when they slipped off his shoe, it revealed an overlapping toe on his right foot, just as the Lindbergh baby had. And then the details shared by that great aunt from Barberton who was certain the child had been swapped. Here's how that went. Bobby's mother was a native of New Jersey, and a few days before the Lindbergh kidnapping, she had taken him back home saying she was going to visit a sick uncle. She returned two weeks later, after the kidnapping, 
carrying a large wad of money, all the more strange because this was the Depression. People didn't usually come home with more money than when they left, but even more disturbing. The child that left with her didn't look like the boy that came back with her. And the great aunt wasn't the only one to remark on it. Police interviewed a witness named Ira Meyer, an Akron auto mechanic who said in 1936, he had driven the real Bobby Dolphin to Children's Hospital for a hernia operation. This was a month before the kidnapping. He said the baby was very ill and lay limp in his arms when they took him into the hospital. He didn't see the baby again until Glendora Dolphin returned from that family visit to New Jersey. He stopped by the Dolphin house one day, and Glendora pulled out several large bills and offered to reimburse him for gas since he had often driven them around town. He didn't inquire as to how she had suddenly come into so much money. And then he saw Bobby. I looked at the child and was amazed to see that the child was a third larger than the other Bobby had been. Also, he had curly hair, where the original Bobby had one little tuft of straight hair, Meyer told a reporter back in 1936. He went on to say, I took one look at the child and I said, why, that's not Bobby. I'll never forget how she stood there a minute, thinking, and then she suddenly admitted it. No, you're right, she said. That's not Bobby. She didn't say any more, and I didn't press her. I figured her own baby had died, though I had never seen the death notice, and that she had adopted a new child. Another witness told a similar tale. Her name was Esther Ebert, and she had worked for a couple of years for the Dolphins. She said, I was there when they took Bobby to the hospital. Mrs. Dolphin then told me that she was going to New Jersey to see a sick uncle. When she returned in about two weeks, I was called back to the house. There was a child there, but it was not Bobby. I said to her, why, Mrs. Dolphin, that is not Bobby. Oh, yes, it is, she said. Only they fed him up at the hospital, and he got bigger, and his hair got curly. Well, even little Bobby's father, an Akron bus driver named Andrew Dolphin, began to have doubts. A newspaper quoted him saying, I was summoned home from a trip I made to St. Louis when my child was a baby. They informed me he was very ill. When I arrived home, I found a perfectly healthy child who didn't resemble my baby at all. I said to my wife at the time, this is not our child. Our child did not have curly hair. Later, I noticed that my wife had plenty of money. I saw $600 in $20 bills in her possession at one time. She could not seem to explain to me where she got it. Off and on, I would keep saying to her, this is not our boy. And then another shocking twist. Bobby's late mother, Glendora Dolphin, knew a maid who worked for Ann Lindbergh's mother in Inglewood, New Jersey. The maid's name was Violet Sharp. Now, during the kidnapping investigation, she was questioned, as were hundreds of people connected to the Lindbergh and Morrow families. And at the time, police kept getting the feeling that she might know something she wasn't sharing. Well, the summer after the kidnapping, they grilled her repeatedly. And when they told her they wanted to interrogate her for a fifth time, 
she killed herself rather than face another round of questioning. Now, I told you this was a rabbit hole, and we're going to go one layer deeper. The guy convicted of the kidnapping and murder, Bruno Hauptmann, he always insisted he had nothing to do with it. He said the ransom money he was spending belonged to his business partner, Isidore Fish, who had died a few months earlier. He said Fish owed him $7,000, so he simply took the money he found at Fish's place. Now, the great aunt from Barberton, who had started this whole ball rolling, told police this, that Isidore Fish had come to Akron in the early 1930s and that he worked with a gang from Barberton to plan the Lindbergh kidnapping. She said they even dug up the body of a child from a local cemetery to use in the plot, and that they gave the Lindbergh baby to Glendora Dolphin, who carried the babe from New Jersey to Ohio. She said Bruno Hauptmann was an innocent dupe. But the more police pressed her on the details of the scenario, the more she started clamming up saying she was now afraid for her life. And the story derailed even further when authorities learned that the great aunt had spent time at Maslin State Hospital back in 1924 because she had been having hallucinations that her family was persecuting her. Then Bobby's dad came forward and said he was misquoted in the papers that he never said the boy in the care of his wife didn't look like his son. And New Jersey State Police sent word to Akron that they had compared Bobby's fingerprints to prints that were lifted from the Lindbergh baby's toys, and they simply didn't match. In the end, authorities decided Bobby Dolphin was not Charles Lindbergh Jr., and three months after the circus in Akron began, on April 3, 1936, Bruno Hauptmann was electrocuted at Trenton State Prison still proclaiming his innocence even after the New Jersey governor offered to change the death sentence to life in prison if he would only confess. Our story isn't quite done yet because even though the case was closed as far as official authorities were concerned, that little Bobby Dolphin grew up haunted by the memory of those witnesses who had come forward to say they had asked his mother why he didn't look the same. The fact that his mom had known a maid who had worked for the Lindbergh baby's grandma. How she had come into a whole bunch of money she couldn't account for. How little Bobby was actually in New Jersey the very week the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped. And his face. How he looked so remarkably similar to photos of little Charles Lindbergh Jr. That Beacon Journal reporter who found Robert Dolphin in 2000, then 69 years old and living in another Akron suburb, Norton, found out the man had been thinking about having his mother's remains exhumed from her grave at Old Talmadge Cemetery to get a DNA test, just to be sure. Dolphin had lived a full, satisfying life. He was a 1950 graduate of Norton High School, spent 41 years working at PPG and seven years serving in the National Guard, He and his wife, Betty, raised three well-rounded, happy children. As teenagers, all three children were told about their father's part in the Lindbergh drama, and all three kept their promise to him that they wouldn't talk about it outside the home. Still, all three, 
ended up researching the case on their own, becoming experts on every little detail. And there was one detail Robert Dolphin just really wanted to confirm, his birth certificate. It says he was born to Glendora and Andrew Dolphin on August 24, 1931, 13 months after Charles Lindbergh Jr. He said, you only know what you've been told, and what I've been told is I'm me. I don't have anything to dispute that, but you wonder. In the end, he didn't need to exhume his mother. They realized all they needed to do was confirm that he was related to the rest of his mother's family. A niece from Akron offered her DNA, and the test came back later in 2000. He was his mother's son, and not the child of Charles and Ann Lindbergh. This will be the end of it, Dolphin said. I'm not the Lindbergh baby. The news came just in time. Robert Dolphin died the following year, in 2001, at the age of 70. That's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.